what happens when you take a patchwork transportation system running into a patched-together city during wartime conditions? You do your best. You have to work with what you've got. You maximize the existing system. You turn challenges into moments for celebration. Volunteers have to step in and take charge. When you're up against it, you have to rely on members of society that you disregarded before. And as much as you may try, the city will never be the same again. This is about Philadelphia during the Civil War from 1861 to 1865, as seen from the streets. This is Found in Philadelphia, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Philadelphia's past so that we can better understand the present because our history matters. I'm your host, Lori Almond. With each episode, I hope that you'll learn something new, see things a little differently, and be inspired to go discover some of this history for yourself right here in the city of brotherly love. This is the eighth episode in a series about the history of Philadelphia streets. This episode will look at the Civil War years from 1861 to 1865. If you're interested in hearing more about Philly during the Civil War, particularly how it impacted the Black community, you should check out earlier episodes three and four. And if you're enjoying this series about Philly streets, you can support the podcast by leaving a review and telling a friend to check it out. If you're in the market for a new book, you can also find books that inspired the podcast at bookshop.org. Your purchases support the podcast and your favorite local bookstore. Check it out at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash found in Philly. The Civil War was a defining moment for the Philadelphians who lived through it. They were the men who fought in the war and in Philadelphia, More than half of the men of military age served in the Union Army. And this statistic is true for both Black and white men of military age in the city. Over 10,000 Black men would enlist in Philadelphia after 1863 when they were allowed to join as segregated units. Though not all of these Black men lived in the city, a great number of them did. So fighting in the war became an important shared experience for the men of this generation. But the streets of Philadelphia also provided shared experiences for those who didn't go off to fight. Overnight, Philadelphia's streets became part of a national military campaign. We typically remember the Civil War as happening in the battlefields to the south, but Philadelphians would have seen the war unraveling right here in the streets. Let's take a quick look at Philadelphia just before the war broke out in 1861. The recently consolidated city felt like it was full steam ahead, onwards to a bigger and better future. In the past hundred years, the city had grown from a colonial port to become a major manufacturing center and the second largest city in the United States. Its population had grown 12 times over, with development along the Delaware River reaching from the coal wharves of Port Richmond in the north down past the docks of the Navy Yard to the south. The city center was filling up with blocks of row homes, all the way to the Schuylkill River and up towards Burke Street in the north, where Temple University is today. Residential blocks were beginning to fan out into West Philadelphia and extended out beyond the historic cores of Germantown and Maniunk. Philadelphia's population had passed half a million by the war. Much of that growth came from continued immigration, 
of mostly Catholics fleeing Ireland and Germany. Immigrants now made up a third of the city. Violence against Catholic immigrants had died down over the past decade, but there remained a great deal of anti-immigrant feeling in the city, especially in politics. Over 4% of Philly's population was Black, at least according to official records. With 22,000 Black residents, the city remained the largest community of free Black people in the North in this period. Many of the city's white residents felt threatened by this large population, and Philly remained a deeply prejudiced and strictly segregated city. So the Black community created their own institutions, organizations, and businesses. And it was this diverse and deeply divided population that had to get through the war together. From the moment that war was announced, Philly streets became an important space for demonstrating public support for the Union and for stamping out any sympathizing with the slave states. The city had close financial ties to the South and there was significant political support for the anti-war Peace Democrats, better known today as Copperheads. But there was zero tolerance for this kind of talk on the street. If you wanted to walk the street safely, you'd better keep those opinions to yourself. On the day that war was finally announced in 1861, after weeks of tension, the streets of Philadelphia were fluttering with flags. They hung out of windows. They were mounted on streetcars. Crowds of young men were on the lookout for any Southern sympathizers. A mob gathered outside the offices of the secessionist newspaper, the Palmetto Flag. The crowds broke into the lower floors and started to destroy the place until someone hung a large American flag from an upper story window and the mayor arrived to calm the situation. Throughout the war, Philadelphia streets remained a dangerous place to voice support for the South. Within a week of the first shots being fired at Fort Sumter, the streets of Philadelphia also became part of the mobilization of the Union's military forces but it wasn't the most efficient system by any means. Philly streets were soon filled with recruits. Men gathered at outdoor recruiting centers, like at Independence Square. The streets served as an impromptu parade ground for drilling the new recruits. The streets soon flowed with ambulances, transporting the wounded to the many hospitals located throughout the city. Philadelphia would develop the largest hospital centers in the North, with huge facilities in West Philadelphia and Chestnut Hill. Family and loved ones boarded streetcars and hired carriages to get to the bedsides of the wounded. And the streets were also important for mobilizing supplies needed for the war effort. Guns, uniforms, blankets. The streets were used for loading these supplies in factories and then unloading them at one of the national armories. And from there, they'd be issued to all the new recruits. And the city streets were a major artery for moving soldiers around during the war because few of the city's transportation hubs were connected. Soldiers arriving from the Northeast, traveling by a mix of rail, steamboat, and ferry, ended up at the docks on the eastern edge of the city along the Delaware River. The Pennsylvania Railroad carried soldiers back and forth to Camp Curtin near Harrisburg and beyond and had its largest station on the western banks of the Schuylkill River at 30th and Market Streets. But if you were heading to and from Washington, D.C. or to the front lines in the South, 
Soldiers had to find their way to the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad, which had a terminal at Broad and Washington Streets to the south. The beat beat of marching soldiers crisscrossed the city throughout the war years as troops made their way from one transportation hub to another. But the citizens of Philadelphia made the most of all of this coming and going. Marching troops provided opportunities for spontaneous celebrations during the war years. Parades would spring up as regiments arrived and departed from the various train and ferry depots located outside the city center. These were not always organized events, but formed as crowds gathered. When troops were departing, friends and families came to say goodbye on city streets as crowds spilled out of the transportation centers. Returning troops were often received with more ceremony. First, the wounded were sorted and carried to one of Philadelphia's many wartime hospitals by the volunteer fire brigades. Then, those that could march would be escorted through the streets with a band and a police guard. Crowds would gather again to greet them and show support, with many also hoping to get news about the war and their loved ones. And Philadelphia became legendary for not just the movement of troops through the city, but for the care the citizens provided for them, because it was the initiative and organization of volunteers who provided services for the troops when it was clear that the government was falling short. At the beginning of the war, many people thought that it wasn't going to last that long. There was generally poor planning for the care of troops while they were traveling, and also for providing care to the sick and wounded. In Philadelphia, as citizens witnessed Union troops marching through the city streets, volunteers stepped in to help. Many soldiers passed through Philadelphia along the Delaware docks near Washington Avenue, which was the old location of the Naval Yard. Here, day or night, many found a warm welcome after they arrived on shore. Two refreshment saloons were established for the soldiers passing through. First came the Union Volunteer Refreshment Saloon, followed soon after by the nearby Cooper Shop Refreshment Saloon. These privately run establishments began simply just tables set out on the street at Washington Avenue and Swanson Street, but they soon took over nearby buildings. Volunteers came from all classes of Philly society. Their common bond was that most came from the surrounding neighborhood. People living around the naval yard would know that a shipment of soldiers was arriving when a cannon was shot off to call volunteers to the saloon. Once they heard the cannon, at any time, day or night, volunteers would arrive and begin brewing coffee and cooking bacon. The kitchens could quickly brew 120 gallons of coffee. At its height, the Union Volunteer Refreshment Saloon could serve over 1,000 soldiers at a time, often serving 15,000 soldiers who passed through on any given day. After the meal, the soldiers would then line up to march to their next destination. These volunteer refreshment saloons were so popular that they began expanding to provide washing facilities and stationery and stamps so that soldiers could write home. Eventually, both saloons also organized nearby volunteer hospitals for returning soldiers. These supplemented the dozens of small wartime hospitals that popped up all over the city. And the refreshment saloons provided their generosity to all men who were affected by the war, feeding black men who were escaping from slavery in the South, as well as Confederate prisoners. So the war flowed in and out of Philadelphia through this patched together system of transportation, hospitals, and refreshment saloons. But everything had to navigate the bustling city streets in between in order to actually get through. 
The emergency of war underscored that the primary role of Philadelphia streets was the movement of goods and people. So the Civil War years forced the city to maximize the efficiency of a very inefficient system. Civic order on Philly streets was essential for the war effort. The city's police were augmented by the District of Philadelphia Military Command, which would grow to include an invalid corps as the war dragged on. They worked together to maintain order on city streets. Given the city's underlying ethnic and racial tensions, there were real fears that riots on the streets could disrupt supply lines for the war. And large numbers of young male soldiers just added to the city's concern about disorder. Several incidents seemed to push the city to the edge of violence in the streets. Soldiers fighting, pro-Southern talk, the extremely unpopular public drafts that were held in the streets of each ward, and the heated re-election of Lincoln in 1864. But in every case, calm was restored, often through the combined efforts of the mayor, the police, and the military's provost guard. But violence wasn't the only concern on Philly's streets. The city still had to function for the half a million residents who continued to live and work here during the war. But everyday life on the street could potentially mess up this rickety mobilization system. The city's police force was also charged with keeping the city streets clear of obstructions to keep things moving smoothly during the war. Philadelphia enacted a host of new nuisance laws to keep the streets clear for the war effort. Because Philly wasn't ready to give up its use of the streets as a place to work and play, even if there was a war on. Let's hear from our guide to the history of Philly streets, Michael Kahn, urban studies professor at Stanford University. You begin to see a big wave of anti-nuisance laws passed during the Civil War that banned or in some cases simply reiterated a ban on certain kinds of, of sidewalk obstructions, um, also on certain uses of the streets. Uh, again, many of these just kind of codified bans that, that were already in place in principle, but it's, it's notable that the city wanted to reiterate this during the war as a way of, you know, emphasizing to people in the city that they can't just, you know, use the streets for whatever they want, that the streets implicitly are really meant for the transportation of people and, and goods. The sheer number of things that were outlawed gives a remarkable picture of the city streets during the war. The street remained an important place for daily life. The streets were still being used informally as a place to do business. There were consequences for using the streets for sawing wood, storing building supplies, or selling hay. Wheelbarrows were restricted to early hours, and wagons weren't allowed to remain standing in the street. Philadelphians were still playing dangerously in the streets. Laws banned them from flying kites, building bonfires, launching fireworks, and firing guns wantonly. I suppose firing guns with restraint and precision was okay. People were blocking the streets and sidewalks with their trash. Regulations prohibited residents from leaving out everything from loose ashes and oyster shells to dead animals and privy excrement. And Philly streets were still full of animals. There were regulations about how animals could be ridden, driven, or allowed to stand in the streets. So no horses, cows, sheep, goats, or pigs allowed to roam at large in streets or public squares, 
and no parking horses or carriages on paved sidewalks. And just in case you're wondering if these were frivolous laws, just after the war ended, the police force removed 350 obstructions on the streets and sidewalks of the city, though they called them the highways and footways. And I'm quoting in full from Michael Kahn's work, the police issued fines for obstructions in the streets such as, quote, coal cars, marble, cargoes of molasses, water troughs, trimming of trees, dangerous flagpole, eating stand, liquor vats, old iron, chain cables, casks, secondhand furniture, unloading cars on the highway, washing carriages on the footway, bonfires on the highway, manure on the footway, etc. Clearly the citizens of Philadelphia were not quite on board with using the streets for the efficient movement of people and goods. Throughout the war years, the streets were the place to find out the latest news from the front lines. People often couldn't wait for the next edition of the newspaper to come out. So news from the battlefront was posted on bulletin boards outside newspaper offices. Reports from the battles were confusing, based on hearsay and often contradictory. Large crowds would gather on the street to read the latest headlines. Crowds were sometimes so large that those in the front had to pass the news by word of mouth to those in the back. The mood of these crowds could turn angry or jubilant, depending on the outcome. And it was the newspapers that carried lists of the killed and wounded and imprisoned back to the home front. The government had no formal system for notifying families. The chaotic lists printed in tiny print in the newspaper columns were the best information that families might have. One particularly painful time in Philadelphia was the summer of 1863, when the city had a brush with the front lines of the war and people were out in the streets every day trying to get the latest updates from the newspapers. During June, the newspapers had been full of dispatches about the Southern troops moving towards the Pennsylvania border. Citizens on the street, reading the billboards outside the newspaper offices or grabbing the latest edition from a newspaper boy could read a bewildering array of information. What the papers carefully referred to as the so-called Confederate state troops or rebels or traitors were seen by various witnesses moving through Maryland. But the news was full of words like supposed and believed and reportedly. Would they cross into Pennsylvania? Or was this just a trick meant to draw attention away from another attack? Soon the reports confirmed that rebel troops had crossed state lines and the headlines read, Invasion of Pennsylvania. The governor called for volunteers to defend the Capitol. In Philadelphia, a company of black volunteers were outfitted and sent to Harrisburg to help. Confederate troops in the North were a special kind of nightmare for the black community but the governor of Pennsylvania turned these black volunteers away. The union wasn't ready to accept their services yet. The rebel flag was reported to be flying in the streets of Chambersburg. Then Harrisburg was filling up with refugees, including hundreds of the enslaved who had escaped north. The rebels had taken Carlisle. No, Carlisle wasn't taken. Where was Carlisle anyway? Maps of central Pennsylvania soon took up the front pages of the paper. Then on June 29th, the news read, to arms citizens of Pennsylvania, the rebels are upon us. This may have been one of the lowest points of the war. A crowd gathered on Chestnut Street to read about the advance of Lee's army. There were no high spirits on the streets, just crowds of stupefied men, 
reportedly looking careless and indifferent. There was a lack of confidence in the government and the North's ability to win the war. Philadelphia appeared to be on a collision course with the front lines of the war. As July 4th came and went, the news was full of conflicting stories about a great battle near Gettysburg, but readers had to be content with snippets about distant cannon heard from Harrisburg and York. Even though Lee and his army retreated on July 4th, Union victory wasn't announced in Philadelphia until July 6th. The initial relief was soon followed by a shocking number of casualties who would soon be overflowing all of the hospitals in Philadelphia. And with them came horrific descriptions of the battlefield. The newspapers continued to list the killed and wounded for weeks afterwards. These events in Philadelphia in the summer of 1863 revealed an important shift in public opinion about the role of the Black community in the war. And the result was seen on the streets, where the push for equal rights would soon grow louder, bolder, and more public. During the early years of the war, the Black community didn't need to be told to keep their heads down. They kept a low profile out of a very real fear of racial violence, which continued to simmer very near the surface in Philly. Leaders reminded people to make sure to be home and off the streets early. Times were tense. The streets were full of armed men. Even the announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation in early January of 1863 was a cause for concern. It wasn't clear how the white residents of the city would react. So the community of black residents and white abolitionists quietly marked the day with prayers and private speeches away from the public. Now, the Emancipation Proclamation was a flawed document, but it was still extremely important. It showed a glimmer of what could happen if the Union won. The proclamation clearly linked Black freedom with the power of the federal government and the Union cause. The picture of what the country could be like if the Union won was now just a little bit clearer. In that summer of 1863, Philly Street saw another major shift. Fearing an imminent attack, the city of Philadelphia armed and outfitted a group of 90 Black volunteers in Independence Square and sent them to Harrisburg. But as I mentioned, the governor in Harrisburg sent them back to Philly. This was at the request of the Union Army, which had conflicting opinions about enlisting Black men at that point. But mainstream newspapers in Philly were saying that it was madness to reject their aid. And by late summer, the Union began actively enlisting Black men to serve in the federal U.S. colored troops. In October 1863, the 1st Regiment of U.S. colored troops formally paraded down Philly streets with a full drum corps, armed and wearing the Union blue. They were on their way to Virginia. No one was quite sure how this would go. The city had refused to allow other colored troops to march. Street corners were full of threatening groups of men. Outside a hotel, a white man in the crowd ran out and stole the regiment's flag. The color bearer for the U.S. colored troops knocked the man down and took the flag back. And the largely white crowd cheered. After this, black troops became a normal sight on Philly streets. There's an ugly fact lurking behind this story. 
These black men marching off to fight in Virginia in 1863 were not receiving equal pay or signing bonuses like their white counterparts. Black soldiers were paid $10 a month, but then had $3 deducted each month to pay for clothing, leaving them with only $7 a month. In contrast, white soldiers received $13 a month and had no clothing deductions taken out. And then black troops were required to be led by white officers. Needless to say, this put a damper on black enlistment. It was not until the summer of 1864 that U.S. colored troops would be offered the same pay as white soldiers, which was applied retroactively, assuming you'd survived. A special school in Philadelphia was also training and commissioning black officers to lead them. The North badly needed these men to serve. The black community in Philadelphia was well aware of these changes. They began to see a future where a black man who had fought for his country as a soldier with equal rights could no longer be denied full citizenship and a right to the ballot box. They began to push for their rights more loudly in Philly's segregated streets. And they focused on the festering issue of being denied access to the streetcars. Throughout the war, Black people, both great and small, were refused a ride or were forced off of Philly streetcars. These included dignitaries like Frederick Douglass, who traveled throughout the North to encourage Black men to enlist in the Union Army, at least when they were allowed to after 1863. There was also the Black naval hero, Captain Robert Smalls, who was in town while his ship, the USS Planter, was under repairs at the Navy Yard. Smalls had escaped slavery by piloting a Confederate ship out to Union lines in Charleston, and his tactical intelligence and bravery won him the position of captain on his stolen vessel. But in Philly, Smalls was refused a ride on the streetcar, even though his pilot, a white sailor, made sure the streetcar driver knew he was insulting a war hero. It was the Black residents of Philadelphia who suffered the most, especially after their young men enlisted. These Black soldiers were no longer living in their tight-knit neighborhoods. They were training way up north at Camp William Penn in Cheltenham Township, or they were wounded and recovering at one of the few hospitals for colored troops in the city. Family members, especially women, now had to navigate the city to visit and support their loved ones. The streetcars would have helped them bring care packages to their soldiers, but instead these women were forced off of streetcars, sometimes with violence. But things began to change in 1864 after Black troops were offered equal pay and benefits. The Black community in Philadelphia began to engage in active, coordinated civil disobedience, what the late Representative John Lewis would describe as making good and necessary trouble. They were trying to disrupt the entire Philadelphia streetcar system on a daily basis by boarding the cars, refusing to get off, and causing delays while the conductors tried to remove them. It was a dangerous game, but things were changing. The Black community saw that a door had opened just the smallest bit, and they were getting ready to push it wide open when the war ended. Four long years of war finally ended in April 1865. The streets of Philadelphia were full of joyous celebrations at the announcement of Lee's surrender at Appomattox. Public buildings and newspaper offices were illuminated at night, 
Military bands paraded through the streets. American flags waved everywhere. But the flags hanging from buildings were soon replaced with black bunting after hearing the shocking news of Lincoln's assassination just a few days later. The city streets rang with church bells. In late April, Lincoln's formal funeral procession made its way through the city on its way to Independence Hall, where his body would lay in state. Hundreds of thousands of Philadelphians lined the streets and rooftops and windows, trying to get a last glimpse. An extraordinary sign of the times was the inclusion of the 22nd United States Colored Infantry Regiment in the military escort for Lincoln's body. For a moment, war service mattered more than skin color. Philadelphians lined up for miles, reportedly reaching from the Delaware to the Schuylkill Rivers for a chance to see Lincoln's body at Independence Hall. Men, women, children, both black and white, waited for hours for their turn. Women have been conspicuously on the margins of much of this discussion of the street, but the Civil War saw women organizing and volunteering in a much more public way in support of the war effort. Though much of this work was done in churches and hospitals and volunteer saloons, many women were also working as contractors, sewing uniforms, or even working in factories making munitions. While some women were more than happy to return to their peaceful domestic lives after the war ended, many women were now widows and had to provide for their families. A growing number of women would start to challenge the assumptions that women should not earn wages, have public lives, or express political views. We'll see women more and more out on the street in future episodes. Thank you for listening to the Found in Philadelphia podcast. Please check out the podcast website to learn more, see some historic images, and find a list of my sources. This podcast was researched, written, hosted, and recorded by me, Lori Ament. So all mistakes are my own. Cyril Tayendi is the audio engineer and leads the community recording collective at Drexel University. 